Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is Tuesday, March 12, 2019, and my guest is economist and 2018 Nobel laureate Paul Romer of New York University. This is his fourth appearance on Econ Talk, the last being in March of 2015. Paul, welcome back. Hey, it's good to be back. And how many more times do I have to be on before I become the, the leader? You know, <laughs> I think only about 32. Okay, well, so let's, you're on, let's get let's get busy. You're you know? on your way. You're on your way. <laughs> uh, you, I, I want to start with your um, your thoughts on growth, which we've talked about at length here. But I I want to talk about a recent formulation you gave, which I really liked. Uh, you contrasted the economics of objects and the economics of ideas. What do you mean by that distinction? Yeah, um, we have these fundamental units in our you know our models economic models there's people and we make some assumptions about people but there's an external world which is usually characterized by physical objects i think of that as the kind of the world of malthus i think it was also the world that we evolved in as a species in you know the pleistocene era so there's scarce objects uh we are rivals for the use of those objects there's some food resources that one group of people can have or another people can have, and we're kind of fighting over it. There's a zero-sum game. Um, and the, the kind of the, the most, I think the most important implication of that world of objects is if there's more people, it's worse for everybody on average because with a fixed set of objects, there's fewer objects per person if you have more people. It's just kind of like this iron law. It's inescapable. Um, now, the world we live in, especially since the the Neolithic Revolution, when we settled down and started discovering things, is a world with both objects and ideas. Ideas are insights about how to rearrange the objects, to transform them, to turn them from things that are less valuable to us into things that are more valuable to us. So ideas let us get more value out of a fixed set of objects. And the really exciting implication about this to me is that if there's more people, even more people that are remote from me, I don't know them, I don't like them, it may still be good to have them around because even though there's less total objects per person, they might discover something valuable. And this is where the difference between objects and ideas really matters. If they discover something valuable, then I can use it, they can use it at the same time. So for a smaller set of objects per person on Earth, we might actually get more value per person because we're using a lot more ideas to extract value from the fixed set of objects. So that's the, that's the fundamental difference between objects and ideas, this notion of everybody can share it uh, or it's only one person can use it. it. It does have this implication that if you keep discovering more ideas, you can keep getting more value, so we get growth. But I've I've recently gotten more excited about the, you know, the broader implications about this, about how we treat other people, so that we start to see other people as um, allies at least, not as foes, 
And I think in some ways what's happening is we're learning to live in a world of ideas with a mentality that's carried over from, you know, the Malthusian Pleistocene. And that tension between us versus them and they're coming to get us versus, wow, when people work together, we can do these amazing things. That tension, I think, shows up in all different parts of modern life. Well, Jonathan Sachs, uh, former chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, talks about the dignity of difference and the importance of difference in trade. Uh, going back to Ricardo, which is a very narrow example of what you're talking about. The yeah. idea that if you're not quite the same as I am, there's opportunities for specialization and then for trade. Mm-hmm. But I really love the um, the point you're making more generally because I think so many people's common sense view of the world is zero sum. And one mm-hmm. of the things that economics training does for you is it allows you to see the possibility of mm-hmm. non-zero sum, which is radical. Mm-hmm. And yep. you're pointing out that you know if another country does better – that doesn't make us poor, and that's so hard for people to understand and accept, and it so yeah. goes against how we're hardwired, probably from yeah. those uh, pre-Neolithic times. I think so, and and you know the the kind of the what was really exciting me about ideas right now is that um, difference in our endowments of physical objects, like the Portuguese had land with more sun, the British had land with more grass, that could lead to differences in the agricultural products. And then we could show people this notion of gains from trade, a non-zero sum world. But that was all derived from differences in um, in uh, the kind of endowments. And the other thing that we were kind of embarrassed about, so we didn't highlight, was that if the British could have killed the Portuguese and had the Portuguese land, they would have been even better off. So it wasn't, they didn't want the, port, the Portuguese, they wanted the Portuguese land, they wanted port. So that Pleistocene mentality was very much, yeah, let's go pillage and take their stuff. If their stuff is useful, we could have it all. This new insight about ideas says, you know, it's actually good to have the Portuguese around because even if we all start out being similar, even if we could, you know, take away all of their land or they took our land from us, it would still be good to have other people out there discovering things because we're more likely to stumble onto something which is going to be beneficial for everybody. That's very deep. Um, and of course, let me push this one point because I, I, I've had uh, some people kind of pushed me not to use, like they told me not in my Nobel speech, don't use this story about the Portuguese or something. But um, the, the thing that really is interesting is we can value the Portuguese not just Portugal. And the usual story about gains from trade says it's good that Portugal exists. What this new insight is, is that it's good that the Portuguese exist. And I think that somehow makes us better people if we start to think of other people in that kind of light. I couldn't agree more. I think that's, uh, that's fabulous. In fact, you argue that ideas are also about who we are. Um, yeah. And I think that's partly getting at this point you just made. I want to push you in a different direction and get your reaction okay. to something I've been thinking about lately, which is that I don't think economics – what you just said is profound. It does reduce potentially the dichotomy between us and them, whoever them are. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we just think about daily life and the things that make our hearts sing and that bring joy, surely uh, some of those things are uh, our interactions with other people. 
Mm-hmm. Our friendships, love, our families, uh, the connections we make, the communities we belong to. Uh, it strikes me that economics has virtually nothing to say about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet we purport to do what we call welfare economics, which is how do people feel about different policies and all that stuff, that enormous corpus of economic theory just ignores that social mm-hmm. aspect that I mentioned earlier. Uh, yeah. Do you th- ever think about that? Does that bother you? Yeah. Well, um, I, <laughs> I I always adopt the kind of the glass half full <laughs> interpretation of these things if I can. So I think of it as, oh, this is a way we could expand economics and make it much more useful. And the way I would do it is by saying this thing we call the utility function which leads to, you know, some notion of kind of well-being or, you know, um, you know, kind of quality of life. Um, there's some things that go into that utility function that, we're, that we ignored, some inputs, consumption inputs. And one of the consumption inputs might be consuming the physical presence of another person and consuming the interaction of the conversation with that person. So we could include, as part of consumption and utility, social interaction. And I think if we keep pushing along those lines towards what I would, you know, at one point I was calling extended preferences, then I think we've got just an extension of our usual framework of analysis. We can still do things like welfare economics, talk about efficiency, but um, I think we would have a much better insight into all the different things that uh, lead to an experience of well-being for uh, for people. Yes, I don't think that works. I'll tell you why, and then you could okay. see if you agree. Yeah. Um, we know somebody who did that. Gary Becker was really yep. good at it for an economist. Yep. Uh, and in his hands, it was a somewhat insightful uh, framework, certainly more than it would have been in my hands. I, but, I tried. But, now, but, but like which, which papers are you thinking of by Gary? The theory of social interactions. Which is directly out of oh, directly out okay. of uh, an attempt, I would say, I didn't appreciate at the time because I didn't know much about Adam Smith, but it was an attempt to bring Smith's theory of moral sentiments into uh, the framework of utility maximization. And yeah. in some ways, I think that's a trying to put a square a round peg into a square hole. I, I, I don't yeah. think it's made okay. for that. Yeah. Just for example, uh, an example I use on here sometimes, you know, Smith's about propriety. It's about doing what's proper. Some yeah. of Smith, some of Smith. Uh, and of course, that's part of human interaction. That's that's me not talking too much on this program. Uh, it's me not interrupting you too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, me. What are you talking about, right? Yeah. I mean, what's the problem with interrupting? <laughs> but it, it's also, by the way, it's also me trying to figure out how to make you look good. So I can, yeah. I might edit that part out where you made that interruption <laughs> in case people don't that know it's rude. a joke. Uh, Maybe people right. don't know that's a joke. And I'd say, well, you know, yeah. even though. <laughs> that made me look made me look better than Paul, the right thing. And you could say, yeah, but that's in the long run. That's in your well being also. Blah blah blah. But yeah, I think yeah. the, I think we fundamentally. My point is, I think we fundamentally uh, miss what's imp- many things that are important about life. And and why does that matter? It matters for a lot of reasons. But one of which is our obsession with efficiency and growth, both of which you and I care a lot about but both of which we understand are not the only things that matter. Yeah, yep. Well, so I think we're agreed about what life is like for us as we live it. Um, and then the question is just how how do we respond as economists to the fact that we're not capturing important parts of this? 
the, the reason I asked about which paper by Gary is that in this thinking about extended preferences, I was very influenced by his work on addiction. But um, that, that addresses a different part of our preferences, which is not just that there's other things that influence whether we feel good or bad, but the history of our interactions can influence how we feel about something today. So if I've uh, first time I taste, you know, beer, I might think beer tastes awful or coffee, take coffee. First time you taste coffee, it's bitter. It's aversive. You know, why the hell would anybody drink this? But then over time you can really develop a, a, a taste for it. Um, so I think that's another part of this uh, aspect that we're trying to get at let me, and I agree, I'm really, like, I'm adding, if I can mix my metaphors, I'm adding epicycles to this square peg that I'm trying to force through the hole. But um, I, I think that the way I, the way I think about it is that I have feelings, like utility, about something like, I'll give you an example. When I showed up in New York City from California, I'm standing at the, the side, on the sidewalk. The sign says, don't walk, and all these people start to walk. So I have this feeling, which is, I have this itch, this urge to scold those people and tell them, you shouldn't do that. The sign says, don't walk. You know, so we can actually feel like moralistic about somebody else's behavior and even feel this desire to, to scold them. You know, at some risk, you scold a New Yorker, you know, you might, you might get yelled at or punched. Um, now, fortunately, I was smart enough to, you know, hold, uh, bite my tongue and not say anything about the jaywalking. But um, if you're willing to buy into the idea that we not only get utility out of interacting with people, but we can even have a kind of utility, which is like a, a small desire to punish somebody when we think they're violating the, the rules, then, um, then I think you can start to understand why we do things like scold each other for, you know, like not picking up at your dog or, or jaywalking. <laughs> and if you'll bear with me, now let me bring it back to this history dependence that Gary was talking about. When I came from California, I had developed a set of moral preferences that put cross against the light in the that's bad behavior kind of category. So I saw people doing bad things. You know, I have this built in tendency to want to kind of scold them. Um, after I'd lived in New York and I paid attention because it was so different I, after about six weeks that desire to scold people had completely gone away. I looked at people crossing the street. I crossed the street when it said, don't, don't walk. And it was like, yeah, of course, that's what everybody does. So my desire to punish people for crossing the street went away because my preferences shifted, you know, walking against the light from the bucket of that's a bad thing to, oh, that's just a normal accepted thing. So you could say that when you make it so complicated you got preferences which are so flexible they don't really mean anything but my my view is that they're actually kind of rich enough to describe this complicated behavior um, that explains why people sometimes want to scold each other um, and why we can have like an equilibrium where everybody in my neighborhood picks up after their dog even though the police don't ever give anybody a ticket for um, uh, for doing it well, I think you're getting at something else I think maybe even more important, which is our human urge, also not in our models, um, to belong, to be part mm -hmm. of something, a feeling of community. Mm -hmm. You happen to pick something that's actually somewhat dangerous, and uh, it's a dangerous habit that has benefits because you don't 
sit and waste time standing on the corner if there's no traffic. So right. we understand that. But but your general impulse to go along with what's happening around you, whether it's wearing a certain type of clothing, whether it's your mm-hmm. hairstyle, uh, whether it's what you do on Sunday morning versus uh, Sunday night, it, th- those mm-hmm. are things, those are, th- those are really important tribal parts of our makeup, I think, that we neglected our peril and yeah. failed to think about, um, and we, and we, as economists, and we shouldn't fail. It's they're really yeah. important, yeah. and we assume that stuff compensates for that. So if we have more stuff but less belonging, we sort of ignore the belonging because we can't measure it, but we can measure the stuff, so we count that. Mm-hmm. And I've become obsessed in the last few weeks with this idea that by looking where the light is, where this, where the stuff we can measure is, we're missing mm-hmm. a really important part of the human experience. Yeah. Oh, I I think that's a very important insight that um, we can have a very rich analytical framework for doing economics. But if it uses as inputs measurements or data on certain kinds of things, we're almost inevitably going to over uh, attend to the measurable things and not pay attention to the things that are that are tougher to measure. But I think what that suggests is that we need to work harder to try and measure those important but hard to measure things rather than just say, well, they're out of bounds. We're just not going to, not going to talk about them. Um, and, and I think we're, I think we're actually pretty similar in our view of the world. And the kind of the question is how best to get economics to relate to this. It could be that we kind of have a division of labor where other people think about something like norms and moral uh, beliefs in a social context. Community. And economists, and economists just, we could use, you know, kind of insights from that group. But but maybe it's forced, but I think if we can feed it into our existing apparatus, like a, a preference function, um, we could make much more effective use of that stuff. And I think it's, um, or <laughs> those insights, and I think those insights are really important. Well, you said... Uh you quoted uh, Faulkner, one of my favorite writers. You said, yeah. to be relevant, to offer practical policy advice, economists must embrace the full range of motivation that William Faulkner alluded to in his Nobel banquet speech. Quote, love and honor, pity and pride and compassion and sacrifice. And I'm going to – we don't have to go much more on this, but I think – I disagree with you. I don't think we should be looking for better ways to measure those things. I think that's a okay. – I think that's a fool's game. I think that's scientism. I think those are things that don't lend themselves to measurement, don't lend themselves to cost-benefit analysis. They do lend themselves to trade-offs. I, you know, there's where I, where I think mm-hmm. the apparatus of economics has something to say and and scarcity that that matters. But I, I don't think the human heart works that well in a maximization framework all the time. And I think our apparatus in encourages us to think of anything we do in that area scientific when often it's not. Yeah. Yep. Well, I, you know, I, I, I hear you, but I, I think this is such an important area. If you'll bear with me, I'd like to keep going on it for a second. Sure. Um, I, I, um, I spoke with Martin Wolf recently who, you know, was trained as an economist, worked in development, now writes a column. Um, Martin said that years ago he was thinking about writing a paper that he was going to call the value of values. And what he was thinking of is that a society can develop certain values, like some of the ones you were referring to before, like courtesy or propriety. 
those might be very important values when you live in a dense, you know, urban kind of context. And if we can accumulate more of those values, we might all be better off. So however economists go about their work and what they measure and what data they look at and what statistics they consider and so forth, I think it would be good if we could at least allow for the possibility that uh, makes sense to say, as a society, it would be good if we could invest in more values of this type, like more courtesy or more um, uh, more value on a reputation for honesty. Um, now, it, it still leaves you with some practical questions like, can you actually change values in a social context? It's hard. But, you know, if one could, and historically, I think societies have sometimes, it's important to be able to talk about the real benefits that could come from different sets of, you know, prevailing moral beliefs. Well, I think they matter a ton. And I think as all that's correct, except for the, maybe the last part, which is the implication, maybe we could do something about it. I think it's, I think most people would agree that it's better to live in a world of trust than a world without trust. If people are generally honest about trusting each other, it's a little tricky, mm -hmm. right? Because cheaters can yeah. exploit that. Yeah. And a world of trust is great for cheaters. And if there's too many yeah. cheaters. The trust evaporates. But um, I think most of us agree that those those intrinsic motivations are often much more effective than extrinsic ones. Whether you know it's prices or punishment or various mm -hmm. types of uh, costs and benefits that that we might impose on each other. I, I think the challenge is. Um, like you said, we we don't really know how to get there from here, and we might disagree about what they are. And so civilization, it seems to me, is just the attempt of what we would normally call market forces, but they're not typical ones. They're norms and social mm -hmm. pressures of various kinds, ideologies, right. movements, fiction, all kinds of stuff that affects how people look at the world. And then things emerge out of that that some work better than others. The ones that work better tend to create better societies. but it's a pretty blunt system, so you can have a pretty mm -hmm. dysfunctional society that works for a long time where there's yep. little trust and people struggle and suffer if they were that relative to a different equilibrium, right, within their that culture. Mm -hmm. But there's not much to do about it. It's pretty hard to change. Yeah. Yep. We, don't, we don't understand. Well, a better way to say it is we don't understand that process very well. If we did, maybe we could do something about it. Yeah. Yep. Um, well, if I can draw a link to – Charter cities for a minute. This was part of what was on my mind when I was thinking about charter cities. And let's let me give explain you a specific what they are example. For people, explain what they well, are for people who don't remember. Uh, yeah. Okay, but but first let me set it up. Um, so let's imagine. Let's take uh, people in Greece after you know the, in the midst of the crisis. It's quite possible that most people in Greece would say to themselves, "I would really rather live in a society where everybody." Uh, feels like it's right to pay taxes and they feel shame if they don't. And if it is uncovered that somebody didn't pay taxes, there's social, you know, uh, disregard, loss of status for that person. Now, a person living in Greece might say, but I don't live in that society. If I just try and pay my taxes and people find out, they'll think I'm an idiot and I don't know how to change them. And so they might say, boy, there's just nothing we can do about the fact that you know, in Switzerland, everybody thinks you should pay your taxes. In Greece, they don't. But but what what we have to think about now is not so much competition within one of these equal area, but competition between. People can move from Greece to Switzerland. 
we know that when you take somebody who had like the Greek values that, hey, it's it's a kind of a game to cheat and everybody thinks you're cool if you cheat. You move that person to Switzerland and, you know, pretty soon they're going to think it's bad to cheat on your taxes. And they're going to think you're supposed to wait for the light to say, <laughs> you know, walk before you cross the street. Yeah. So so I think you need to start thinking about competition between different social groups to think of these dynamics of, of norms. Now, so what was the idea of charter cities? It was to basically create a sort of a, a blank sheet of paper on which one could build a new social group. So imagine you had a bunch of Greeks, some of whom are in the tail, who really feel like it's important to pay taxes. They wish their fellow citizens agreed with them. Suppose a group of the moralistic, we should really contribute to the society, we should pay our taxes. Suppose a group, a group of those Greeks move to a brand new place. Instead of being the minority, suddenly they're the majority population in this new city. And then uh, as other people move in uh, and join them, they're going to assimilate to their values. Like everybody pays their taxes um, just as they would assimilate to say that the Swiss values. So a new startup you know, society gives you a, an option for changing social norms by a breakaway group and then slow rate of um, immigration and um, assimilation to the to the new sets of, um, of norms. So working back, what I was trying to think about is what kinds of practical legal and social arrangements would it take to create opportunities for starting from nothing, just empty land, the possibility of a new city growing up? Because I thought a city was the smallest, like a city that could get to 10 million people. That was the smallest viable unit you could imagine trying to create in the, in, in the modern world. But I think it, it would be give us an opportunity to change norms in a way that people living in societies they're unhappy with would really like to, uh, to change them. So this was really the motivation for that, for that project. Along with, I assume, the, the opportunity to have a legal and, and other extra norm system of, of enforcement yeah. that might lead yeah. to good behavior as well, right? Well, yeah, well, but this is, and I wasn't fully, you know, explicit about this because this was evolving in my mind. And it, I also thought it was going to be a hard, you know, slog to persuade people. But I'll, I'll tell you where I came out. I started thinking it, about this at first, the way economists do, saying, okay, if we had a brand new place, we could start a new city, we could, quote, impose law, the rule of law, and then people would come in and we'd have the benefits of the rule of law. I think that analysis is just deeply flawed because. I think you know, if you look at places where somebody comes in and they pass laws, they set up courts, if those laws are not consistent with the norms in the society, yep. no, but nobody follows the law, the, the system just collapses. <laughs> yeah. So I think I decided we had to start first with the norms and then figure out a way to change the norms. Then on top of those norms, you could build you know, some supporting laws and you get a kind of a positive feedback loop between the, the norms and, and the laws. But I don't think moving first with the laws is is likely to succeed. There may be rare cases when it does, but um, generally, I think you really got to figure out how to get um, motion, get get things going on the on the norms. So a lot of the attention to the charter cities turned to practical details, and it also got caught up in um, 
two very distinct applications. One could be within a country where they're trying to do an internal reform project by creating a new zone. I, I kind of refer to this these days now as like the Shenzhen approach under Deng Xiaoping within China. The other would be an external jurisdiction where somebody outside says, here's a place people could move to if they want to. And um, uh, if you want to leave the country in, you know, you'd be welcome to come. And that's more of the Hong Kong model. And um, especially that second model has gotten, you know, caught up in the very kind of fraught debate about how to respond to pressure for migration right now. But it, but it was all grounded in a belief that we needed to think about how to give people a chance to actually help change the norms of the society or choose the norms of the society in which they want to live. And is there any prospect of them actually happening? It's such a, an interesting and potentially transformational yeah. idea. And I know you've yeah. gotten close, but um, where, where well, do we stand now? Yeah, so I had a few conversations um, in, uh, in Madagascar and then um, Honduras um, where the approach was a little bit like the Deng Xiaoping tries internal reform with a special zone within the country. Um, this is, even if this was likely to succeed in a few cases, you'd have to expect a fairly high failure rate. But having looked at these things up close, my sense is that a country which is at a low level of development and with low government capacity is going to have real trouble trying to set up um, a, a zone that is, is run differently. And, you know, in Honduras in particular, I was pushing very hard to try and bring in an outside um, uh, influence. And, you know, that was not in the interests of the actors who were you know, pushing it domestically. But so I've kind of given up on, for most of the developing world, this internal Shenzhen model. I still think there's room for developed countries, you know, like Britain, uh, Germany, Canada, uh, to look for places where they say, we're going to replicate the Hong Kong experience. We're going to acquire some land voluntarily. You know, there's like, there's nothing about the historical experience of taking land by force that you want to replicate. But there's, there's ways to replicate, uh, just to get a deal where you acquire some land. And then, you know, one of these countries could say, we're going to set this up as a jurisdiction that people could, you know, voluntarily move into. And, uh, uh, I, I think it would be good to think about that as a way to, you know, change norms about things like paying taxes, you know, also change broader norms about, um, you know, uh, kind of the uh, propriety and civility that we talked about before. Um, change norms uh, on a bunch of dimensions that might create societies that people would, would rather live in. And I don't think everybody else seems to think that this is a, a ridiculously infeasible prospect. I think it's just outside of our realm of comfort and familiarity, but I, I just don't see any reason why Canada couldn't create a, you know, a 20 by 20, you know, square mile zone someplace in the world and say, let's, let's try and create a place people could live to, uh, move to, live in, work, work in, and, uh, and see how it goes. Yeah, I mean, it's just such a thought-provoking idea. I mean, I'm thinking about areas of the United States that are struggling economically, um, mm -hmm. West Virginia, say, or yep. rural Ohio, parts of Kentucky, places that have lost, uh, say, industries of coal mining and other activities that mm -hmm. used to be productive. Uh, the people who used to do those things 
for reasons that we might talk about, uh, stay mm-hmm. <laughs> instead of leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And their opportunities are quite diminished as a result. They don't migrate to where there's more opportunity. So it's not – but I don't think the the problem is, is that they've got bad norms there. Or it's just that the people whose skills – the people who are there have low levels of skills, and there's yeah. nothing there to enhance those skills. Yeah. Um, now, Amazon has has changed that a little bit. Amazon has put, you know, warehouses in low density places because land is cheap, and they they put some mm-hmm. stuff in the middle of nowhere. Or you could put a you know a server farm in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. But it's not Hong Kong. Yep. Well, I think one temptation that you know. I have to resist, and I think everybody should resist, is this, you know, I have a hammer, I want to go find a nail uh, kind of yep. phenomenon. I, I don't think Charter Cities is the right way to think about uh, any kind of policy response to West Virginia or other places where there's some distress. Um, but on the other hand, it is the case that there are hundreds of millions of people who say they would leave, they want to leave this year, from they want to leave this society they currently live in, so I, I think that is this demand worldwide that we should think about trying to accommodate somehow. And, um, the, you know, there's, there's obvious concerns about you know, this char- Charter City proposal. There's reasonable people, I think, should have qualms about setting something like this up. But I think we have to ask ourselves, what's the alternatives that could um, – uh, that we that would let us offer in some humanitarian way an option to people who want to leave very uh, you know very dysfunctional dangerous environments and I I think it's very hard to come up with some feasible alternatives to this uh, this need. Yeah, no, I'm with you, and, and of course the United States when it had large swaths of undeveloped territory, um, it was a perfect place to let people come and. Just push that western board frontier out, and mm-hmm. um, you know I, I like the idea of, of of taking a a forest that's owned by the government and not uh, being very productive as a forest, either as a beautiful place or as a place to grow trees for commercial value, mm-hmm. but just mm-hmm. let it uh, create let let some entrepreneur do something crazy and creative there. Uh, and let people come there. So I love the idea of it. It's great science fiction. It might be, and it might be even feasible. So who knows? Yeah. I, you know, I think, um, you know, sometimes I try and put myself in the mindset of people in like 1730 or something. And if, you know, if we'd been in the seminar room in 1730 and, you know, somebody came in, Thomas Jefferson came in and said, I'm going to design a new country. We're going to have a constitution. We're going to have separation of powers. You know, what do you guys think? We'd laugh him out of the room. That'll never happen, you know. But you know, sometimes these things happen. So uh, I think it's worth keeping the conversation uh, alive, but but recognizing that you know the the dynamics are slow and the the odds are not are not very high. Uh, before we leave this topic, I just want to ask you: now that you live more in New York than in California, mm-hmm. besides jaywalking, do you walk more quickly from place to place? Oh yeah, I think I do. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I walk a lot more. And I think I haven't quantified this precisely, but my impression is that even distances that are the same, there was a kind of a habit about, oh, I get in my car and drive to the coffee shop, where here it's like, okay, I walk out the door and I walk to the coffee shop. Even comparable distances, I think I'm more likely to walk here than, than there. And I actually, that's one of the things I really love about New York is kind of uh, freeing myself from the car, which 
if you think about it, it's a kind of strange thing to say because (laughs) the car didn't force me to drive it, but somehow being in an environment where I don't drive it so much makes me feel differently. Yeah, and I hear you. Let's shift gears. I want to talk about a paper you wrote that got a lot of attention uh, called The Trouble with Macroeconomics. Mm -hmm. Um, Without getting too deeply into the weeds of um, uh, real business cycle theory and other uh, arcana, Mm -hmm. uh, what did you identify in that paper in, in a philosophical sense or, you know, a philosophy of science sense that, that you thought was wrong with the state of, of academic macroeconomics? Yeah. Um, well, let me, let me tell the story of where it, uh, how it emerged. Um, I had written this paper about um, mathiness, which was specific to growth theory and how we used math to, you know, advocate for different growth models. I was critical of a paper that Ed Prescott had had written. Somebody sent me an email describing an interaction with Ed in Minnesota where um, Ed was referring to these productivity shocks that were at the heart of these fluctuations in the real business cycle models. And as this person described, someone asked what, you know, what are these productivity shocks? What hits the economy? And then, makes a lot of people unemployed or makes output go down. And, uh, you know, the way he described it, Ed was, uh, kind of like sputtering for a minute, like couldn't come up with to say. And then he looked out at the traffic and said, the, the productivity shocks are like that congestion out there. So, you know, it's like the, the, the traffic congestion. This had a, this had a very funny effect on me because it sort of like hit me like a, you know, like a jolt of electricity, which was, yeah, what are these productivity shocks? Um, These things are just kind of like made up in the models. And so I started calling them in the paper, like phlogiston, you know, phlogiston. It was like this imaginary thing that, you know, physicists that are referred to at some point. And it, it, it made me realize that there was something really deeply wrong, I think, with the style of explanation there. And I felt responsible in some sense as a macroeconomist. I didn't do business cycle theory, but I, you know, I have a, I'm a macroeconomist. I have some responsibility for the profession. I think others of us should have been critical of this style of explanation long before uh, the time when this was, this issue was, was raised for me. So I shifted from my kind of critique that was specific to growth theory and math into a critique of um, how macroeconomists, the, you know, kind of the default leading uh, group of macroeconomists in the f- profession were, were doing their work and um, uh, made what, what is, a, uh, I think, a very harsh critique of their approach, that it was not just that they were coming to the wrong answers, but more in a more fundamental sense, they were not following uh, the practice of science. They had really departed from science and I called it pseudoscience. And um, I, I think this is, this is really a, a version of an ad hominem attack. You know, it's a kind of criticism you don't want to make lightly. You don't want to encourage, you know, easily. But um, on the other hand, if you, you think you've gotten to the point where this is what's going on, I think, other members of the profession have a responsibility to, you know, raise their hands and say, we need to stop and, and look at this. So 
And that, and I should be clear, that paper I still haven't published because it was so critical. It's in was in a circulated draft form, but it still isn't out. The journal very much like to publish it, and I think I need to go ahead and publish it. But I, I not only said that I think the problem in macro is not just that the answers are wrong. I think they've stopped doing science, and I gave some illustrations of what I thought about that. I also did something I've never done before in a paper, and I generally disapprove of, which is to use sarcasm as a way to, um, you know, criticize the it's, results of this group. It's a biting paper. Um, it's a sur- yeah, it's a little bit acerbic. Not not I've seen worse, but it's got a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I generally I don't like the easy recourse to that style. Just like I don't like ad hominem argument. But one of the frustrations over my career, and you know, I kind of know these guys that were friends, classmates, you know, I, I like them as people. Um, one of my frustrations has been this failure to engage when someone like me raises a question about the logic of an argument or the, the, the telling thing for me about the pseudoscience here was the inattention to data. They just stopped letting evidence be the you know, the decider of what's going on in the world. The theory somehow became the, 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 the you know, the definitive uh, way to establish what's going on. Um, what I felt like was, I felt like there was just a w- unwillingness to even engage with well-intended uh, critique. And so, you know, the, the, the assertion that this whole pattern of behavior was unacceptable and the use of the sarcasm was my attempt to, um, um, uh, to really call attention to this and say, if, if I'm right, this is a very serious problem and we need to do something about it. I, because it's, you know, it's kind of like when somebody like pulls the fire alarm. Um, if you do it and it's a false alarm, that person ought to pay. And so I think if there's a consensus that I was just flat out wrong and not just wrong that, you know, that's, it's good macroeconomics, but I was wrong to accuse them of not engaging in science. I should pay. I should pay a big reputational price for that. I really think that because you just don't want this to be an everyday thing. But on the other hand, I do feel like uh, I think I'm right, and I think it's something that deserves um, uh, deserves some attention. And unfortunately, I think it deserves attention, even if it hurts the feelings or upsets people that I like and care about. I, I think what we're doing is is more important than just our, our feelings and whether we get the right answers. Um, really matters so. so I have a similar issue and I don't <clears throat> I don't know if you want to weigh in and I'm just going to mention it and, uh-huh. and make a little bit of a confession to my listeners who've heard me bring this up many times um, I think it's come to be commonly believed by the public and by very thoughtful journalists and at least on paper many brilliant economists that the average American has made no economic progress for the last 40 years. Mm-hmm. And there's data to support that, of course. And I argue that data is flawed. And you know that's an uh-huh. interesting question. You can debate how flawed it is and whether the CPI is correctly right. measured, the rate of inflation. Uh, the problem I have is that there are other data that show progress. Mm-hmm. And that side just doesn't engage it, doesn't put it in their paper. It might be in a footnote. Yeah. They might say in a footnote, yeah. so-and-so has done, made some different assumptions, say about, I'm thinking about, say, the growth in inequality, which, mm-hmm. quote, everyone knows has grown dramatically. And yet, if you make different assumptions about family size and how you mm-hmm. measure um, 
non-monetary benefits, uh, fringe benefits and other things, you get a, a it's not like, oh, you know, it changes by 10%. You get like a two-thirds reduction. So mm -hmm. it really matters. And if you're a yeah. scientist, you shouldn't just say, oh, there are other, op there are other opinions or not even mention them. You should be yeah. grappling with them and trying to understand why you get different results in one yeah. group of assumptions than another. And I don't want to accuse those people of having an agenda. And mm -hmm. I, I hate that. That's the ad hominem yeah. side. Right. And, and yeah. I, I don't even want to accuse them of, of being wedded to their own theories, which is part of what you were writing about, that after a while mm -hmm. you become religious uh, about, mm -hmm. about the beliefs you have about how the world works in what should be otherwise be a science. But it's, um, it's scary because it matters. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think uh, the kinds of things one could do in any area is first try and do a kind of a census and see, do we think it's possible to have a consensus about the facts? You know, we might recognize, okay, we don't have a, con a consensus yet, but is it possible that there exist facts and we could reach a consensus about those? And I think... If people don't agree on that, then you really got trouble. I think in this area, I think people would agree. Um, I'm betting that in some cases, what you have is people saying, I don't really want to be engaged right now in sorting through all the facts and coming to the consensus about those. I want to start work right away on how to deal with uh, inequality because I'm pretty convinced it's a really important issue. And I'm guessing that the way it'll come out is that inequality has gone up. I, you know, I think you could, we could probably tolerate a certain um, division of labor along those lines. And then you got to watch for a tendency for somebody doing that to overstate, to say, well, you know, we know that inequality has gone up. So here's a way we could respond to it and kind of call them out and say, well, you know, there's actually not a consensus about that yet. We need to look at the, the, the measurement issues. Um, if, you know, if that's, the way the debate is playing out, a little bit of overstatement of, you know, the, the baseline and the motivation for what they want to go do. I think that's all, you know, uh, manageable within um, science. I, but there's another problem that I think one should be worried about, which is that there may not be enough professional reward for the hard work of sorting through the facts and summarizing them in a way that people can use them, but yet uh, uh, really being careful about the different, you know, uh, ways to summarize them and the possibility that you're building in some assumptions that are, you know, influencing how you, how you summarize them. So I, you know, I wish over time I've become more and more convinced of the importance of that pure hard work of, collecting data and summarizing them in a manageable way. And frankly, I, I think we, we give too many rewards to people who do theory like I do and not enough to the, the data that is actually the basis for judgments about, you know, like growth and um, growth and GDP. So as a tweak in the profession, I, I'd like to see us uh, pay more attention to, you know, the analysis of data and the, some in the process of summarizing the data that we then use to make models and make policy recommendations. So there's something in between. I want your opinion on actually, which which you've taken us to, which is a lot of people are saying now that theory is on the decline. Mm -hmm. What what sells, what what is honored and rewarded in our profession 
are uh, various econometric techniques for identifying causal connections, uh, natural experiments, and, and the like. So it's not the the hard work that you're talking about of getting the data right. So I'm just going to mention mm-hmm. something in passing as an example. Um, average hourly earnings would seem to be the most basic kind of data on this question mm-hmm. of how people are doing. And yet when you look a little more closely at it, you find out it has compositional effects, effects that are quite mm-hmm. complicated uh, yep. and that are ignored endlessly in any public mm-hmm. presentation of that data. Don't people just say, oh, it doesn't matter. I'll just put it up there. Um, yeah. But that doesn't get any reward, certainly very little reward. What gets mm-hmm. reward is manipulating whatever data is out there in new and creative ways. And mm-hmm. the younger economists that I talk to, we are not the younger economists, uh, <laughs> the younger economists that I took to, they say things like, well, I just let the data speak. I don't have a theory. A theory, I don't want to be constrained by theory. I just want to see what the data say. And I think that is actually intellectually bankrupt, but I'm curious what you think, Paul. Well, yeah, bankrupt, I, I might uh, try and you know, like uh, distance myself from the like the <laughs> judgmental or moralistic kind of connotations there. But, yeah, but I think uh, the, the, the equivalent <laughs> thing one we could say is that um, it, it's – unrealistic or it's inaccurate to say that the summaries that most people provide of data are free of, you know, beliefs about uh, policy or free of beliefs about the underlying causal mechanisms. So I think we need to be skeptical of people who say, oh, my data summary, you know, activities were, you know, kind of theory-free, model-free, policy free and just you can just take my results and work at them work with them i think we need to look carefully at all the steps in the construction of this data and just basically look empirically to see what if a bunch of different people went through the same process of summarizing the data would they all come to the same and they were supposed in the best case they were working independently would they all come to the same results and if not why not and then let's try and figure out what uh what we need to do to reflect this um, lack of consensus about uh, how to summarize them. Um, That's well said. I, I, I've probably mentioned this before in the program, but I was once, I don't go to many seminars anymore, but I was at one recently where someone made some rather bold claims about the magnitude of some relationship between, say, the financial sector and, say, GDP or growth rates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I found them unlikely and implausible, uh, but that doesn't matter. I, I just, but I asked an innocent question. I said, how many regressions did you run to get that result? Just, yeah. I don't want to. I don't know what. I don't want to hear why these are the right variables yet. I mean, I'd like to. <laughs> I'd like to hear that too. But before we get there, you just tell. I'm just like, how many did you run? Did you run twelve or a thousand, three hundred? And you know, eventually, I'd, you know, I'd like to say how. And I asked how many of them found this result because it's okay if if you do three hundred and two hundred ninety five show the same thing. It's just a question of magnitude and what else is in the in the soup, but. Otherwise, I kind of want to see what was in the kitchen. Yep. How did he take that question? He or she? Um, uh, it was a he, and he was shocked. <laughs> he was really, yeah. he was really taken aback by it. But I rec- to all young economists out there listening, and who would go to a lot of more empirical seminars than I do, uh, please uh, ask that question. Uh, I, let's let's turn to the um, your experience. Uh, uh- well, you want to say actually, let me, uh, yeah. let me just say two things. One, um, I'm going to make a plug for a, a, a book by a colleague, uh, his colleague at Berkeley, Ted Miguel. Ted and his co-authors have a new book uh, about really kind of bringing more transparency and reproducibility to um, to social science. 
and um, it's it's just coming out from Berkeley, and it's it's great because it's very practical and, and pragmatic. It just says here are some things we could do to keep track of, for example, how much you know pretesting has been done on the data, and how can we you know reset our you know standards of significant in light of pretesting and. Um, I think with technology, there's actually a lot of ways to do um, uh, do more on this on this this topic. So, um, uh, so I can't I can't remember the the name of the book, but uh, uh, it's coming out. And if you're interested in we'll and if it. you're worried, you know, uh, people should be worried about these um, <laughs> these issues. I think I think at some point it could become a a vulnerability for all of social science if you know if we keep uh, if it keeps coming out that there's you know, weaknesses in our empirical methods or, uh, you know, things that aren't reproducible, then like the whole integrity of um, our, uh, you know, our, our, our discipline gets called into question. So ah, here's the title, um, Transparent and Re- Reproducible Social Science Research. <laughs> who, who, who could be against that? <laughs> uh, well, you know, a long time ago, Ed Lehmer wrote a paper called Taking the Con Out of Econometrics. Mm-hmm. And, uh it should have transformed empirical economics, and it did not. He's, you know, he's still working at it. Can't hurt. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm going to turn to the World Bank. Uh, okay. You were there for about a little over a year, year and a half or so. Uh, well, yeah, like a year and a quarter. And then you left, and uh, yep. some might consider that a short tenure. I, oh, yeah. I felt I'm surprised you lasted that long, Paul. So what what uh, what happened there? It was a little bit rocky. You were the chief economist, yeah. uh, but you left. Why? What happened? Yeah. Well, um, I, if you look over my career, I've done a bunch of different things, and I, I think one of the, the the general patterns I've kind of tried to stick to is be willing to take a chance. And like like the Charter Cities, I was willing to take a chance on say. Going to Madagascar, talking to people in Honduras, even knowing that there's maybe a one in ten chance it's going to succeed. If it was a high enough value, if it succeeded, you know, it's worth doing things that might not succeed. So take some risks. But if you learn that it's not succeeding, just go do something else. And uh, don't, you know, don't just uh, just dig in and entrench yourself and keep doing it if it's not going to succeed. So I thought it was a, a risky uh, endeavor for me to go to the bank. And I concluded that I was wasting my time there. I wasn't doing anything of value, I don't think, for the bank or the world. And so I just decided I was going to leave. And uh, people there were worried about uh, the fact that I wanted to leave. And so there was a little bit, it was kind of messy on on the way out. I could fill in the details if you want. But the, the fundamental dynamic is that, you know, these things, it's like every job is a match. There's a job and there's a person it wasn't clear to me that this was a good match to have me go to the bank. And I think ex post, it was not a good match. And so once you figure that out, I think it's time to just to, to go on and uh, move on and do something else. Now, you want me to fill in well, more of those not details? Yet. Well, the first thing I want you to talk about is uh, most people have no idea what the World Bank does. And of course, mm-hmm. what it actually does is not the same thing as what it is romantically described as doing. I, I have many yeah. friends who work there, by the way. They're, they're the salt oh. of the earth. Uh, I'm big fans of them. I like them a lot. Uh, they're well-intentioned, good economists. and uh, But I don't think it's fulfilled its promise. So talk about what the bank's supposed to do, what, it, what you think it actually does, 
and why you hoped to do something when you were there, what, what that yeah. might have been. Well, and in doing that, I want to illustrate part of why it was an awkward match between me and the bank. I'm increasingly uh, insistent about clarity in communication. And I'm going to describe the bank in what I think is a very simple, clear way. They don't, they're not comfortable with this level of, of clarity. But the bank is a bank. It's got assets of about $200 billion. It's got liabilities of about the same size. I mean, there's, there's equity and then liabilities. The World Bank can borrow at essentially the sovereign rate, the same rate that the U.S. could borrow at. So it borrows at a low rate. It lends the countries at a higher rate. And on that $200 billion portfolio, it makes a kind of a net of about $2 billion a year. And it spends that $2 billion a year on its staff. So that's, that's what the World Bank does. There's a couple things to note. First, $200 billion is a drop in the bucket in a world of really very substantial financial flows. After World War II, $200 billion would have been a lot. These days, it's pretty small. So it's appropriate to ask, well, what function is this organization now, now serving? Because it has, you know, it's a, it's a bank and the shareholders of the bank are countries. So there's a board with, you know, shares of ownership because it's the countries that are the shareholders and they back the bank. It can borrow at this, this sovereign rate. So as a kind of a government-like entity with this privileged position in the financial markets, it's a reasonable question to ask, what should we do with that ability to, to borrow at um, these low rates? Um, I, I think there used to be a view that the 200 billion in loans could let countries do things they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. But now, these days, countries could issue debt, they can borrow in private markets. Um, the loans themselves are probably generating a lot less value uh, than they did uh, you know, 50, 70 years ago. I think the question that one should ask is with $2 billion a year, if this organization set about providing global public goods, and especially public goods that would be valuable, uh, particularly valuable for people in uh, the developing world. You know, two billion could could make a could make a big uh, a big difference. And I think the fundamental tension at the bank is that that two billion is really devoted to staff salaries, and I really doubt the value. Uh, that's created by um, uh, the work that those those people do, just to be totally blunt about it. And I, I think the organization should be willing to ask hard questions about, let's quantify what are the public goods that we think we're providing to the world? Uh, and is there a way to produce more of them at, uh, uh, for the, the, the resources we could spend? It's nominally supposed to help fight poverty with those loans that it makes or to encourage growth by mm -hmm. subsidizing or financing infrastructure of various kinds or reforms. I, I think in most people's minds who are casual readers of the newspaper or uh, Twitter or Facebook, um, they see the World Bank as a uh, ideological arm of free market capitalism, that, that the World Bank lends money to poor countries and then extorts them to change their policies toward globalization and free market policies uh, in, in return for those loans as sort of a, 
uh, a, mm-hmm. uh, a form of of a blackmail. What do you? Yeah. How do? You, what's your perception of that perception? Yeah. Well, I think first, if that's your fear, the good news is the bank just doesn't have nearly as much power as it used to, because a lot of these countries can go get financial resources from other places. So part of what's bank, you know, making people to think the bank question their new role is they don't have as much leverage as they used to have. Now, we could talk about whether they used it well or poorly in the past, but they just don't don't have as much of it. But let me let me give you uh, the I tried when I got there to bank to ask, well, what's our greatest hits album? What are the best things the bank has ever done? Uh, if, if we've done a bunch of good things, we ought to be able to quantify and measure particular um, instances. Here's, I think, the best thing it's ever done. And this alone might justify its existence. When um, when Deng Xiaoping was trying to, you know, undertake reform in China, they had very serious deficits in terms of their understanding of a market economy. They were very worried about um, removing price controls. They could see the argument for some efficiency benefits of price controls. They were very worried about removing price controls because they feared inflation and thought that inflation could lead to, you know, rebellion and collapse of the of the government. So the um, the World Bank uh, uh, representative in China is a guy I've, I've met, Edwin Lim. Edwin arranged some some basic macroeconomics 101. So like James Tobin, you know, gave some macro lectures along with a few other economists on a boat trip on the Yangtze where very high level government officials were kind of confined to this boat. So they couldn't be distracted, other things, and had to go through the basics of how at the time people thought about using aggregate demand policy as a way to control inflation. And that gave them the confidence. It was a close fight, but it gave the reformers enough confidence to win the battle and start to liberalize prices. And this is the really critical step towards um, moving towards the, the, the market economy. So being in that position, being a trusted advisor, uh, the bank and then the representative of the bank, being in a position of the, the, as the trusted advisor who could help when a question has a technocratic issue about what can we do in this circumstance. So you, you tell them what you know, you bring in experts who help fill in the, the details. That can be a very valuable function, and it, it may have been critical to the path that China took towards you know the rapid growth that it's it's enjoyed. I, I should mention that you know the other thing Deng Xiaoping did was create these special zones, of which Shenzhen was, I think, the most successful. Really, of the four, only Shenzhen was a success, but Shenzhen was a phenomenal success, and so. Having people who told them this is how you could manage inflation if you liberalize, and then this separate idea about you know we're going to try and do a reform zone, those two things I think were the the keys in um, in China. But back to the bank, the question is um, how many times has it actually served that function? There are lots of reports that people at the bank produce. There's a lot of talk about we have to be engaged in ongoing loan projects. Sure, they, somebody else could finance this bridge instead of us, but if we're engaged, we know the context, we'll be ready to provide advice. But I was actually very disappointed at, at how hard it was for anybody to come up with a case where the bank actually provided useful advice, which changed the policy direction and uh, in a way that was that was beneficial. 
Now, we had two guests on um, uh, uh, about a year and a half ago, um, uh, Simon Jankoff and Matt Warner talking about the Doing Business uh, report that the World Bank produces. And it's an attempt okay. It's an attempt to quantify uh, the business climate, the ability to cut through red tape, uh, the ability to open a business, things that, yeah. are, that are basic. And, you know, there's a... You can one can debate whether those so who, kind of measures. Who were the two? It was, it was, it was Simeon. I yeah, Simeon. Is, thank you, Simeon Jankov. And then Matt and who Warner, the who's the head of okay. the Atlas. He's not a World Bank person. Um, and he's the head of, of what? Um, the Atlas Network, which which oh, okay. spawns yeah, yeah. Uh, free market think tanks outside the United States and other parts sure. of the world. Okay, yeah. and they're fans of that report, and and I'm mm-hmm. I'm not in general fans of that kind mm-hmm. of aggregate. Uh, and I'm not a fan of the freedom measures, particularly. I, like a, nice friends of mine work on those, and God bless them. But I think yeah. those are fraught with measurement challenges and and easily mm-hmm. manipulated. And you got entangled with some of that. So talk about that. Sure. Okay. Well, um, to put this in the larger context, I remember I was ready to leave the bank. I had a, a concern about a fact that I think needed to be out in the open and be transparent. And part of how I... And when they said, you can't resign, I said, fine, I'm just going to go to the newspaper and talk about my concerns. And then they said, and then they said, you have to resign. And I said, well, that's what I wanted to do. So, um, but, uh, but here was, here was the fact. I, um, I was worried about the possibility that some kind of ideological political views had uh, distorted um, the numbers that were reported uh, from in the doing business report. And in particular, I was very worried about a pattern in Chile where, uh, again, it could have been just random chance, but the doing business ranking moved down, you know, every year when the party of the center left was in control and moved up every year when the party of the center right was in control. Could and, be they had different um, policies, right? Um, well, but if what, what turns out is if you hold the measures of what's going on in Chile constant, um, all of those changes, virtually all those go away. So it's like saying, okay, Chileans are uh, weaker this year because they can only do 20 push-ups. And you say, wait a minute, last year you you said Chileans you know, were at the strength level because it was chin-ups instead of push-ups. And it's like, oh yeah, well, we're using push-ups this year. And then it's, you know, it's, you know, it's like lunges the year after. Yeah. They kept changing the the measures that went into this doing business ranking, and if you just hold constant the measures, most of these changes went away. So um, not good. Yeah, this is this ought to make you worry, and and I also think that um, in science the burden of proof for integrity lies with the individual, not with me. This is not a case of um, you know. A legalistic right to do a job until you know the you know the definitive proof that they're not qualified. When a, you know a certain pattern of facts emerged that raised doubts in my mind about you know the integrity of some of the people involved, my attitude is that you know my job as a scientist is to say I have concerns about the integrity of this process. Now. Um, let's pull back from the fact about what happened in Chile, what, you know, uh, how is the doing business report constructed? Let me talk about the way the bank responded. Um, they commissioned an audit. They 
described, and maybe Simeon described this because he was. No, one we didn't talk about it. that particular. Oh, okay. This was before okay. the. This is ah, okay. November 2017. I think it was before. Maybe not, but. Yeah, yeah, that was before. Yeah. Um, so uh, they commissioned quote an audit, which has a report was by. Um, oh God, I'm going to forget. Uh, Randall Mork. Uh, uh, has a report that uh, Randall wrote, which is, you know, which is pretty reasonable. It basically says, we don't think Romer's right, but, you know, I mean, reasonable people could differ. But um, the bank did not release the underlying work that, you know, Randall had done looking at the different indices. Like, when I left the bank, I actually taught myself Python and put the code out on the internet and said, look, Here's how you could construct the doing business index for Chile without changing the components that go into the index. Here's how they actually do it. Notice the difference that, you know, there's virtually no change in the uh, index for Chile if you don't change the components in the index. And so, like, I didn't even take a phone call from Randall when they were looking at this because I thought they should do their report on the own. And everything I had done on this issue was publicly visible. That's the way it's supposed to work in science. The bank wrote this report, which was the basis for a summary by Randall, which was the basis for a PR, you know, a press release, which said, oh, you know, Romer is wrong. There's no problem here. They would not release the underlying analysis. And I just think that's, you know, a kind of the, that's indicative of all of the problems with the intellectual culture at the bank. And I think the, questionable value of the stuff that they call research that, you know, I think you just can't trust. If they're going to comply with the most basic kind of practices about transparency, I mean, there's nothing sensitive about these numbers. And it was really just a question of how you weight them um, when you can produce these indices. And, and basically their criticism of me about Chile was basically that, look, it, it, when you change all the components in the index, all these countries are moving up and down all the time. So, um, you know, there was nothing unusual about Chile. I still was a little worried about the, you know, the, the directionality. But still, there is a kind of a, a, a problem here. But the fact that they wouldn't release uh, the underlying data is, I think, the really telling point. Quick thing I wanted to ask you before we, uh, when we were talking before about um, macroeconomics. Did you learn anything from the Great Recession? Do you think the profession learned anything? Well, um, I think the first thing is I think we've learned some humility. Uh, I think we uh, we did not anticipate the severity of the, the crisis. And so the confidence we had before the crisis was misplaced. We should have been more, you know, more humble about um, how much we really knew. Um, I, I think we've also acquired more data which suggests that the financial sector is very dangerous yep. and the costs to the world are extraordinarily high. I, I mean, this sounds like a joke, but I actually mean it literally. I think if you quantify the losses from the financial sector and set them alongside the losses of nuclear power, the financial sector's done much more harm with its accidents than nuclear power has done. And why is it that we have such radically different presumptions about the role of regulation or these two, these two industries. Um, so. I think we know the answer to that. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I love mm -hmm. quoting um, 
I know you know the Paul Flaterer work, which he's talked about mm-hmm. on Econ Talk, where we actually start to believe that our models describe reality and that yeah. we can therefore make welfare judgments. That That's one thing that comes to mind. But the other is uh, interviewing uh, Luigi Singales, where he points out that, and he's pointed this out in print too, that uh, economists are the only group that we pretend doesn't respond to incentives. So I'll just <laughs> leave it there. And It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, for for what it's worth, I, you know, I wrote this paper with George Akerlof about the big damage that could come from deposit insurance. We, we called it looting, and it was about the savings and loan crisis. Um, I learned a lot from that paper, Paul. <laughs> yeah, yeah, some some people have said that that um, gave them they, they they took it more seriously after the the, the great uh, crisis, and in particular, kind of realized that if things aren't set just exactly right with your regulations, a lot of bad things can happen. I didn't feel like the financial crisis gave me and George the right to take a victory lap. I, I don't think deposit insurance per se was the, the causal factor in this this crisis. Uh, it may have contributed, but um, but I do think it's worth asking more seriously what you know what in a simple you know takeaway expression summary what happened here and how are we going to make sure it doesn't doesn't happen again. I still think there's work to be done to boil this down to a simple takeaway about what happened. Yeah. Um, well, the thing I learned for your paper is that um, if you think you're not going to lose your money, you're going to be a lot less careful, uh, which yeah. is not profound. But for some reason, it's not easy to remember. And yeah. um, I do think that, that too big to fail had, had something. It's not the only thing, yeah. but it had something to do yeah. with the mess we got sure. ourselves in. Yeah. Um, I want so could, could I just suggest yeah. one takeaway that I, I do think is interesting, and I'm not the only person to say this, um, but there's a there's an insight from how the how we regulate air safety, which is to have this sharp separation between the entity that's the finder of fact and the other entity that actually proposes regulation. So it's the job of the NTSB to establish what happened in each crash. It's the job of the FAA to specify what regulatory changes might be required. I think that separation between finding a fact and then setting regulations is a really valuable one. And it's something we should uh, replicate in many other contexts. It's related to this problem I had with the bank. It's trying to do a job and it's trying to be an objective finder of fact about its job. And it, it just can't do both both jobs. After uh, Dot, part of Dodd Frank was to set up this entity that was supposed to be a, a better data gatherer so that we could do a better postmortem when the next crash uh, happens. I, I think it wasn't strong enough. It's been weakened since then. But but it is a little bit of sign of progress in the sense that we've, we've recognized that we should have an independent entity whose job is only to look at all the facts and the data and say, here's what happened, and to leave it to the regulatory agencies to deal with, you know, like who's to be blamed, you know, who cares about that, but what changes should we make? Changes we should make are just different from what are the the facts, and I hope that I hope that insight uh, gets taken up and gets re- uh, replicated in many other uh, parts of the government. Yeah, we need a black box for Lehman and Bear Stearns. We kind of yeah. have it, of course. We have a record of their transactions. We have their emails to some extent. We do have an auditor who now increasingly hangs out there in those kind of institutions, but it's not quite the same. But I, but, you I, know, I like but the, the point. But partly, partly matters like what are the institutional incentives and what's the organizational structure of the people who go in and 
you know, read what was in the black box. Yeah. Because just <laughs> taking it to the taking it to the SEC or the Congress is actually not going to work. Yeah, that's kind of yeah, I agree. It's like, you know, no comment. Um, yeah, I have a lot of bit really tasteless and macabre <laughs> uh, dark <laughs> jokes to make yeah. with that. And I'm going sure. to but I'm not going to make them. Um, yeah. I want to close and I want to talk about cities because I know that's something that you think about increasingly. And I've argued, well, let me ask it in a couple, let me ask you a couple things. You can just opine on them because I'm sure you've thought about them a great deal. One is the fact that uh, people in cities seem to be more productive and it seems to be an example of the complementarity and synergy between ideas that you have, mm-hmm. have spent a lot of time working on. And I've always wondered as a skeptic whether some of it's just the people who go to the cities happen to be the more productive ones. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, that's a that's a question we can ask empirically or address empirically. And again, I think this should always be with this spirit of humility that we're we're often just seeing a piece of the uh, the puzzle. But you can look at for example um movers, people who move from a rural area to the city and see so you know what was their say like what was the rate of growth of their wages in the rural area was the rate of growth in the city and sort of holding the individual effect constant try and see what's different in these these two environments there's a little bit of evidence that you know holding the individual effects constant people's wages grow faster in cities even grow faster the the fast the bigger the city is the the faster the, the growth so that suggests something about like a potential for learning that's that's greater in in cities um, I, I think um, this general approach of looking at wage changes over the life cycle is something that we should be doing a lot more of because there's a lot of learning that goes on when people are in the job. So it's really that they're better jobs, you know, just like there's some schools that are good and some that are bad and sort of teaching you valuable things. There's some jobs that are better, some that are worse. And it may be that cities on average tend to have uh, more of the better jobs, but we really should be figuring out what are those better jobs and how can we um, get get more of those. And, and then you know it's really secondary to their where they where they tend to to locate. So, um, but I, I I do think that I mean actually and we did I, one of the empirical projects we did at the bank was look at these are what they call mincer regressions. You look at wages as a function of how many years of education you had, and then how long have you been on the job. And this this increase in wage with time on the job, which you can interpret as a sign of learning, people move. It isn't just a contract with one firm. Um, wages grow faster by about a percent per year in an urban area in the developing world than a rural area. So this suggests there's big advantages to moving people from um, uh, rural to urban. But then if you compare the developing country as a whole with the richest countries, Wages grow about a percent per year faster in rich countries than in the developing countries. Say like urban to urban, you get another point. So urban environments in the developing world are somehow not offering the same opportunity to to learn and experience wage growth that somebody could get by moving to another country. And so this is actually a little bit disappointing for me because I thought we might be able to get more by just encouraging urbanization within these developing countries. I think we really have to deal with something that's at least as big, which is what are these differences between countries and how can we, uh, you know, raise uh, the chance to, to learn in the developing country. And lastly, which is related to this question, I've speculated, I don't know where I got it, maybe I thought of it, maybe I got it, probably got it somewhere else, but uh, it appears to be a, 
a, something of a fact that mobility in the United States is falling steadily over time, which is shocking. Mm-hmm. Most people yeah. just, yeah. when I tell them that, they go, oh, that can't be true. Uh, it's akin to, well, there's a bunch of facts like that that I like, but, uh, mm-hmm. or I don't like them, but I find them they're, intriguing. They're interesting. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things I worry about is uh, urban areas, a handful of urban areas, not all of them, have made it difficult to build new buildings and they've made it built difficult to build dense denser buildings and mm-hmm. so as a result rents have have risen dramatically in and uh in certain cities and that's going to make it hard for people to move it strikes me and yep. what do you think how yep. important do you think those things are well um so i haven't looked at that data about falling mobility but it does seem that people who have looked at this or think there's something there so that's worrisome and I've a number of people have conjectured that this reflects something about um, the growing relative price of rental accommodations in cities um, compared to you know rural areas or uh, smaller cities in the big cities. Um, so, uh, and you can see a mechanism that operates here. If you if you have a minimum floor space in an apartment, and if the price of floor space goes up. Uh, people at the bottom end of the skilled distribution simply will not be able to can't live in a city. Can't live in a city with um, uh, you know very uh, very high um, income. Now, and those cities might be like the urban areas in the developing world, where they offer the best chance to learn if you come in with low skills. So it's a problem if we're denying people access to what might be. If you think of work as like school, and I like I like the saying that work is school. Denying people a chance to go work might be like denying them a chance to go to the best the best schools. So I think it um, it should be a very high priority to think about ways to get the entry level price of accommodations down in places that um, might be the most vibrant, offer the most opportunity, and that's got to be both increases in supply and uh, re- removing restrictions on minimum apartment sizes. Both of those could could lower the the, the entry price for a starting. Um, a starting apartment. Um, if I can kind of push this point more broadly, I think this is a much, much bigger question and more important than most people are recognizing. Suppose that people spend a constant percentage of their income on housing, you know, like a third or something through rent or mortgage payments and so forth. That means that a you know a ten percent increase in income means a ten percent increase in spending on on floor space. Um, so then the demand for what willing, people are willing to play, the demand for floor space in urban areas is going to grow at the rate of growth of urban income. Urban income will grow partly because income per capita grows, also in the developing world because a lot of new people will move into uh, urban areas. So then if you project forward, what's the rate of growth of urban income? And ask, is there a, a mechanism for a supply that could keep up with that rate of growth? It's really scary. Um, there just isn't. And so on the, you know, with business as usual, we're going to face skyrocketing increases in the price per square meter of floor space in urban areas. And with minimum apartment sizes, it means people are going to, we're going to see segregation where people with low levels of skill are not going to be in those, those places. So I, I think the whole world needs to start paying attention to this simple market for floor space, urban floor space. What's the demand? What's the supply for urban floor space? And then look at these questions about restrictions on building, on building heights, on you know expansion in the city through that lens of what would it take to have an increase in supply 
that could uh, meet the the increase in demand and keep the price of floor space uh, constant. It's a it's a very sobering set of calculations. A related social phenomenon that that just makes it worse is uh, another one of my favorite little known facts, which is that the marriage age in the United States has rise, risen quite a bit, and the marriage rate especially among low-skilled, low-education people who haven't Mm -hmm. finished high school or have only finished high school, has fallen off the table, which means that if you're not married, if you're married and you have children, you you could imagine living in the suburbs. You could imagine wanting to commute. If you're you're single, you tend to want to be in the city uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, and Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot more people trying to do that than before. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I should say that, um, if, you know, I have these, this colleague, Alain Berteau, who, by the way, has a great book out about, you know, it's good, revolutionize, I think, urban um, urban uh, design. And on urban, the schedule. Uh, on the schedule yep. for Recon Talk, Paul. But, but Alain tells me about this little apartment that he and his wife moved into in Paris, which was tiny when they were a young couple. But yet they loved it when they yeah. lived there. And then we have to remember um, – uh, you know, that, think about what dormitory housing is like for our own children. Oh, sure, you got to share bathrooms, two people are blah, blah, blah. You know, we think it's fine when kids go to college and we think it would be like, you know, a, like a crime if somebody had to live in that outside of college. But we ought to be a little bit more open-minded about these things. But back on this point about, you know, historically, the only way to have a growth in the supply of urban floor space that keeps up with the demand is a very big expansion in built urban area. This is my takeaway from that. You can get some, you know, extra floor space by building taller in the center, but the bulk of the additional floor space is going to come from uh, expansions in built area. And, you know, uh, Paris and London grew by a factor of about 200 in built area over uh, about 200 years. So we dealt with cities that got a lot bigger, and they're both perfectly livable, exciting cities, but for reasons that are really hard to understand, there's a very widely shared belief that cities shouldn't expand anymore. And if you don't let cities expand, that's where we're in, headed for a crisis. But if we just let cities expand, and it doesn't have to be all of them. If one city doesn't expand, well, fine, let the other ones expand. Uh, but if, if all of your cities stop expanding, um, you're really going to, I think, face a, a crisis. My guest today has been Paul Romer. Paul, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Good. It was fun. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.